0: This is a Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, and my name is Michael Slay. I teach 20th century American literature at UC Irvine, and I'm talking today with Dana Spiotta, one of the most exciting novelists now at work. She's written three extraordinary novels, two of which take place in and around Los Angeles, The Lightning Field, Eat the Document, and last year, Stone Arabia. Eat the Document was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Stone Arabia was a finalist for the 2011 National Book Critics Circle Award. Dana Spiotta, welcome.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: The news is not good. We are uh, apparently as detached and isolated and anxious in Southern California as they say we are.
1: That's sort of what everyone always says about Southern California. And I think just because everyone says it doesn't mean it isn't true, right? I mean... It's interesting to me for personal reasons because um, I spent some time here when I was young and then moved away, so I have a certain relationship to it in my imagination, I think. Um, but I also think it is a city in which there are many different contrasting actual landscapes and different, uh, different um, kinds of people living uh, separate lives all under this idea of a city And it has also that, it does have that sense of being, while the East Coast cities feel still European in a lot of ways, and this again gets into a sort of a cliche, but it is still true, Los Angeles does feel American in a way that the East Coast cities don't. It has a kind of newness to it. Um, It also has that same, and what appeals to me is that it contains these multitudes. It does have um, the... uh, the promise and excitement and new but it also has the disappointment and the come down um... to live you know coexisting in a way that i find compelling a lot of things are already going that are interesting to me in the culture um, are writ large here and manifest themselves in very tangible and concrete ways that seem to be everything from the landscape to the way that people get from one place to another and the way that the culture has always viewed um... los angeles you do get this kind of magical thinking when you're in Los Angeles that that comes into play because so much of it is familiar to you even if you've never been here because it is so often in films and in television shows and it has this kind of strange an uncanniness of familiar unfamiliar quality to it a place that you feel at home and even though you've never been there before um, and there are so many transplanted people here so it has all these things that are, are fascinating I think
0: and and uh, always a sadness and melancholy in your novels. In Eat the Document, a character describes the sadness that breaks through the enforced cheer of the Beach Boys. Is that a sadness that's particular to Southern California or something you feel especially here?
1: I do feel it especially here. Uh, I don't think it's particular. I mean, I, I feel it in upstate New York. I think it just follows me around. Um. <laughs> to remake yourself also leaves you, also means you have no self in a way. <laughs> and so uh, there's an upside and a downside to that flexibility uh, that I'm very interested in that, the tension between those two things.
0: You you spent most of your high school years here, yeah?
1: Yes, yes. I went to Crossroads High School in Santa Monica uh, and I, that was a very um, wonderful experience for me because I had been at suburban, living in a lot of suburban places before then that were almost interchangeably interchangeable and generic even though somewhere in Connecticut and somewhere in Northern California um, and I came to Los Angeles and it was the first city urban experience that I really had and um, and it was the first place that ever felt specific to me and uh, made a huge impression um, and I was exposed to a lot of wonderful teachers at crossroads uh, one in particular Jim Hosney was a great film teacher and he showed me movies that really changed my whole sensibility. Opened up a whole world to me Uh, and and it was a kind of place I don't know what it's like now this was in 84 I graduated Um, but where you 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 being different was encouraged and that was important for me because I never fit in in the other places I had been and I didn't really fit in there either but it was okay somehow you know
0: so let's talk a little about Stone Arabia it's about a middle-aged woman Denise in the process of losing her mother to dementia and her brother um, is a musician, your, your novels are full of music. Uh, mm-hmm. Eat the Document, The Beach Boys, Center mm-hmm. Stage, Stone Arabia. It's one of the protagonists, the brother, is an outsider musician who makes music mainly for his sister and his family. Uh, was music important to your experience of Southern
1: California? Music is really important uh, to me. Um, I never was a part of a music scene the way that uh, Denise is part of the L.A. scene or Nick was part of the L.A. scene. I'm really an observer and not a very social person. (laughs) Uh, I I would go to the Roosevelt Hotel and go to And I I bought a lot of records and um, a lot of vinyl and collected vinyl. And I was kind of a geek. I collected a lot of Japanese vinyl, that kind of stuff. And I did, and I worked at a record store in Seattle when I was older. So music is really, I've always followed music scenes, but I've never been a part of one, and I never went to clubs or anything like that. What, what, What
0: did you collect?
1: Um, G- give
0: could, us a window into Dennis Spioto's music, I was in high music school, library, when circa high
1: 1980, school? um, 1980s, early 80s. I was collecting a lot of, uh, Roxy music and Iggy Pop and David Bowie and the Reed and, and that, and a lot of punk rock. Yeah. I mean, I loved, I was more of an English, I was an Anglo. I mean, I was really more in English punk rock than, than, uh, Los Angeles punk rock. To be honest
0: yeah there's a line in the lightning field about the moment when British class war hit suburban LA and transformed it into a beautiful mall driven middle-class American nihilism <laughs> was that your nihilism
1: um yeah I mean I I, um, I had a kind of uh, suburban brat nihilism sure yeah
0: what are you listening to these days
1: um well the odd thing is is that since writing um uh stone arabia i've sort of um not been listening to much music because i had listened to a lot of music when i was writing it um so right now um i've been listening to a lot of 50s rock and roll um i've been listening to some elvis and i've been listening to eddie cochran and i've been listening to carl perkins and chuck berry and and yeah. stuff like that
0: great stuff <laughs> I think I think I heard somewhere you say that as much as you were interested in music in Stone Arabia that you were also really interested in painting and writing that novel. Um, can you say something more about that? What was it about painting in particular? There's a couple epigrams. From Du Buffet, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I was just interested in the idea of the outsider artist, and um, you, you know, you can't really have a rock and roll outsider artist because they're supposed to all be outsider artists. And uh, but 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 the idea of someone just toiling away, um, out of uh, out of step with everyone else, and having a secret project that they go to. So I was thinking a lot about that, um, uh, and I was. You know, there, there are a number of, uh, of interesting... I, I, I wanted Nick to have some of those elements, so I was looking at some of those people and also... But I didn't want him to be mentally ill in any way. I wanted him <laughs> to be completely aware of what reality was. Um, he had to be conscious of what reality was. It was really important for me that no one thought Nick was mentally ill. I mean, he may be an alcoholic, but not uh, delusional about his own role in the world. He doesn't really think he's a rock star.
0: And the painter who figures prominently in that novel is Thomas Kincaid, who recently oh, yeah. recently passed away. Can you say a little about what it is that interests you with Thomas Kincaid?
1: Well, you know, he's definitely not an outsider artist. <laughs> well, except no. he is sort of hated by by serious artists. Uh, well, he was just commercially successful and um, had, and, and you know, I couldn't resist part of that that he had his that he had his painter of light. Trademarked, and it just seemed um, to fit the character um, Denise's boyfriend. I I wanted him to have an obsession, uh, and it sort of fit into the themes of the book. Um, and I, I, when I was in upstate, when I, I would, I've been living in upstate New York, and you go to the places and you see Thomas Kincaid's stuff everywhere. Um, you see the sort of uh, all the um, coffee cups and the this and that, and the calendars, and uh, so I became, you know, really. Got annoyed me, so I wanted to, to make fun of him a little bit, Um, even though the character in the book doesn't does, claims that he's not making he's not being ironic at all. He sincerely, likes to collect him. The British artist. Yes, he refuses to admit to any irony.
0: Now Nick is an outsider artist and seems at first pass to be as unlike. Thomas Kinkade, as you can imagine, but when Denise, his sister, goes through his stuff at the end, (laughs) she finds movies, merchandise, promotional tie-in products. What's going on there?
1: Well, you know, I think that um, I like, when I'm writing uh, about something, uh, I think of it, when I start out at a certain point, thinking about characters in a certain way, and ideas in a certain way. And as I'm writing it, and extending it, and extending it they, it tends to circle back on itself um, and find its own internal contradiction. And uh, so it's very hard for me not to, to do that um, because I think that, that, the, that the closer you look at something, the more complex it becomes and the more contradictions it, it shows itself to have. And, uh, and I think there's something true about that. I, I think that, that uh, um, there is a point in which Thomas Kincaid and, and Nick Worth meet uh, and his odd relationship to fame is in a way as obsessed as Thomas Kincaid's relationship to fame. So, um, so yeah, I guess I have. To, I I can't just give him his purity. I have to take it away from him. I feel in some way.
0: <laughs> Nick launches his solo career um, after a music producer sits him down and tells him that if he wants to be successful, he has to be many, many, many different things to many different people. Is that true for novelists writing today?
1: Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't think about that. I only just do the thing that I do and I don't have any sense of... Uh, I'm surprised that people are interested in I-
0: Interested in? In my work. You're surprised?
1: Really? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 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 it's a pleasant surprise. amazes to me um particularly with stone arabia all three books that um it seems so strange and eccentric and uh and i can't imagine that people will put it together and get meaning out of it um and i and then i'm and then they do and i want them to and i try to make it legible to them but i but but it, it 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 still surprises me. And, and it surprises me that I'm published, actually. Yeah.
0: You're published. You're a published novelist. You're published on Scrivener's. Scrivener's, which is owned, was owned when you publish at least Eat the Document by Viacom. There's a line in Eat the Document, one of the, the radicals from the 60s explains is their, their, their street guerrilla theater by saying they do it to convince themselves they don't have Viacom tattooed on their asses. Yeah, that was a
1: little inside joke, yes.
0: Do you worry about having Viacom tattooed on your eyes? Of
1: course I do. Of course I do. I actually have that now. It does seem strange that that, uh, publishing houses are owned by these huge multinational corporations. Yeah, that is strange. Um, I don't think that it it doesn't... They never would tell my editor what she could buy or not. Um, and uh, they certainly would never be able to say anything about what I can write, and so I don't think it has any, it doesn't affect the work, but it's still something to think about and, and be worried about.
0: And surely the appeal of Nick is in part that he's an outsider musician, right? He doesn't have a producer, he doesn't have a publishing or distribution company, he does it all on his own.
1: Yeah, well, I, the, one of the reasons, I, I mean, when I was working on this book, um, I was very interested in this idea of not having an audience and what that would get you i mean i don 't think Nick Nick wants to have an audience it was he just didn 't want to do the things that he had to do to get an audience you know and he has a sister and he has some friends um, but i don 't think that, that that character really um, wanted to not have an audience, but I think he settled for that because he still he wanted more to be the person he wanted to be and he didn 't want to have to promote himself or put up with the kinds of people that he would have to put up with and the concessions he would have to make um, and I do admire that the purity of that and uh, and I hope that I would be that way too if there were un, if, if it felt compromised I hope I would say I would rather just do this on my own in my room somewhere than have it be something um, that I didn't feel good about so I feel very lucky that I have this publishing that I am published I feel grateful and lucky that I get to do this thing and it gets put out in the world um, and, it, and it seems like just a str- just luck. And that apparently the they case.
0: apparently they pay you as well.
1: And th- yeah, sort of.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, yeah. Note yeah, to Viacom: Yeah,
0: <laughs> you, you need to pay Dennis Spiota more. I'm not going to ask you what happens to Nick at the end of the novel because uh, you don't know. Uh, we'd only find out about Nick if it's picked up by Showtime, <laughs> 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 made, made into a, a, a premium table cable television series along the lines of. Egan, and doing The Goon Squad, and Franzen doing The Corrections, and Michael Shabin's doing a series. What do you make of this, all of these novelists doing television series?
1: Um, I think it's great. I think that uh, it's exciting that the, that television has become a place where writers can do, have more control, because Hollywood has always been this place where, you know, writers were supposed to go and be destroyed. And, um, and now there's a place where writers have a little more power in these long form television dramas, uh, and comedies. And that seems exciting. I think I would be very, I would be, I'm excited to see those shows and Sam Lipsight's, show I'm really excited to see.
0: And Salman Rushdie doing a show for Showtime. It's funny, a lot of these novels have also written about music. Rushdie has a novel about music. Uh, Egan's novel is about aging punk musicians and record producers. Franzen's latest is also about a punk musician. Right. Why all the contemporary interest in punk? It's something that's been percolating in the background of your novels, all three of them. Yeah. It seems to have come to the fore lately with a lot of these works.
1: I don't know. It, it's funny because when Eat the Document came out, everyone said, "Why are there so many novels about underground fugitive?" <laughs> you know, fugitive. And, 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 there, and there are many. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that. And and, and Hari, uh, country's new novel has a rock star in it as well, uh, but a famous rock star. I'm the only one who has an, the the fake rock star. I'm the only one who has the the loser rock star.
0: Although well, you did do the Beach Boys, though.
1: That's true. That's true. I had I had Dennis Wilson in. Uh, had a role in Eat the Document, um, and 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 so does Arthur Lee has, is actually there are characters in my in Eat the Document, um, and uh, that was fun to do that yeah, and oh and, and Steve Erickson's new book David Bowie plays a big role, he's actually a car- a big role in the book so there's one of the a things, lot
0: of it. one of the things that you seem interested in in Eat the Document is is what we hear when we listen to these songs from our youth or from ages decades past, there's a character, the young boy, uh, Jason, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost as if he's he's hearing his way back to the part of his mother's history that he never had exposure to. He, he hears things in the songs that turn out to corroborate events that she lived through. They both share a relation to Dennis Wilson, for example. Mm-hmm. This is this something that is interesting to you? The I mean, kind of what gets captured in a song in the midst of all this nostalgia now for music of previous moments.
1: I like looking at other art forms, visual art, um, film, music. I was thinking about this in terms of, um, you know, when Orson Welles uh, came to, to Hollywood to make um, Citizen Kane, it really came from the theater. And a lot of the innovations came from trying to do theater things in film. Um, and I think there's something interesting about stepping away from the medium that you're Pursuing and trying to do something that another medium is supposed to be better at, and it's sort of perverse, but I, I but I, it's exciting, and it's creative to me. So um, in Stone Arabia, I was very interested in thinking about music, and, and and I guess Jennifer Egan in her book really modeled it on making a you know a concept record and and, and that kind of thing.
0: Egan also said that that novel *Visit from the Good Squad, was inspired in large part by *The Sopranos*. And I'm wondering what you're watching these days, and whether that golden moment with HBO—the *Sopranos* and *The Wire*, *Deadwood*—did these shows mean anything to you, or did you watch them? Did you did you, did you talk at water coolers about them?
1: Uh, <laughs> um, yes, of course. I, I, you know, I'm I'm I was born in 1966, so I kind of grew up with TV and watched a lot of TV um, and always and TV has gotten a lot better <laughs> in the last 10 years it certainly has um, and uh, yeah I watch Mad Men I really like Mad Men I watch that a lot <laughs> and uh, I watch The Wire and I watch the, I love The Sopranos and uh, I, you know, I have um, lower standards for TV I don't watch uh, a lot of network TV that's true but I, I do like to watch some of the cable TV I'm trying to think about it. I watch The Daily Show stuff like that Yeah. For, yeah
0: Breaking Bad stuff. do you watch Breaking Bad? I did
1: watch Breaking Bad kind of in a rush all together that's the other thing is about these long shows when you get them on DVD and what does it mean to watch 10 episodes in 3 days is that some ter- does that do some terrible damage to your brain? Or is it the same as when I was on the airplane yesterday and I read Hari Kunzru's novel, his 360 page novel, in one day, just just immerse myself? I kind of think that's the way you're supposed to do everything, just, just in a big swallow like that.
0: You said you were interested in the particular things that particular art forms do well. What is it that the novel does best?
1: Well, I think the novel is excellent at, um, at depicting consciousness. The sound that you, the, that you hear in your head when you're thinking, the novel is very good at recreating that or creating a, a, a facsimile of that that's convincing. In a way that say film can't, you have the voiceover in film, it always feels fake and sort of, are not the way your mind sounds. Um, and something about the silent reading, maybe it's a cognition thing, the way you read, it is close to the way you, your voice sound, uh, way words, language is used in your in your mind. So I think consciousness is a, a is something that really the novel does better than any other medium. And and I also think the novel is a kind of uh, has a, a is a place where things can be increasingly complicated, and they don't necessarily have to have resolution. The expectation is not that you would have to um, you can have formal closure without having a sort of plot closure. Um, then the narrative doesn't have to shut down that with literary fiction you can have a kind of openness to it and um, and then I think that there's a the beauty of the novel for me is that it is just language uh, I even kind of wish there weren't covers, hmm. you know that it would just be a blank like a, a galley, the way they used to do galleys where it's just a matte blue with the name of the book because there's something about it just being language and yet having all of this Possibility in it that I love.
0: And Stone Arabia ends on this extraordinary note. It's a, a note of longing. Denise is listening to records, and and there's and she fantasizes that she might be both the voice that she is listening to on a record, and the person listening to that record at the same time. That she might be, in other words, the singer and the person the song is sung to. Um, it, which it also feels like a moment where the novelist is thinking about her reader I mean, you're thinking about the person reading your novel maybe um, mm-hmm. can you say more about that ending about the, that kind of closing the loop between yeah. the singing voice and the person who listens or the, or the writing voice and the person who reads
1: well I think that the the end of the novels, an end of a novel is, is a place where something different can happen but it still has to be of what you've created so it has to be organic to what's been put in motion but it's also a place where you can Swerve or and I would say you'd sort of have to swerve and, um, and I think that in this book I knew that I would not be explaining what happened to at the I mean I don't want to destroy the book for people who haven't read it, but I, I, there, there, there's a mystery in it that doesn't get solved. let's put it that way. Yeah. There are a couple actually. Um, so, so I wanted to, to bring it down to a point to a sense. Um, but I also wanted it to keep going. And a lot of novels end on on memories. There was a writer, uh, Brian Hall, who pointed this out to me, and I I didn't realize that, and I thought about that a bit. This was after I wrote Stone Arabia. But there is something about um, circling back, which kind of keeps a loop going, which is an interesting way, a strategy at the end of a novel. And that's certainly what what Stone Arabia has. And that, that section, that long section at the end, is kind of a miniature version of the book, um, you know, uh, Nick disappears. <laughs> she's left alone. Uh, her mother's gone. It's just finally her alone in her room um, or in her brother's room, but she's alone uh, and but she has music and there's something about and, and it, this is really intuitive when you're working on it. Um, but then you keep it because you know why it's there, why it was sort of spit up in, in, in your mind uh, that this is where you're going. Why am I going here? Don't worry about it. then you read it now I see how this all fits. And, uh, and that was the way I felt about the end of the book, um, that, that, that I wanted to end on them before. Uh, I wanted you to see what their lives became before you saw what they used to be, essentially. And, um, and so when you get to that end point where they're younger and you, see, and you now have all this knowledge of how they ended up, so it's bittersweet, it's innocent, and it's full of possibility, but it isn't also the way none of us are really full of possibility. I know I'm pretty dark Uh, (laughs) because we're all going to die and it's all going to come to an end. Right. But there's still those moments when you're young, where you think anything is possible. You think you can be the singer. You want it all. And there is that longing. Uh, And, and and the moment before that is when Denise has this rather raw gesture that kind of fails. um, And there's a kind of adult longing for a connection there. And then I wanted to go end on her childhood longing for connection and and so you could see and I think just connecting things is a way to bring um, a kind of formal closure because the system feels complete. you're not you don't feel that you've been um, left hanging, but you also but it hasn't been shut down and explained away so that you don't ever have to think about it again. I want it to be unsettling. When you say it's unsettling, that's precisely what I want. I think that's good. I don't want it to be unsatisfying, but I want it to be unsettling.
0: So you had never, had, had, did you receive an MFA? No. You didn't. So, so what's it like to, to come into an MFA program, one of the country's best at Syracuse? You've been there three years. What kind of a transition is that?
1: Uh, I like teaching a lot. Um, uh, being around young, um, really talented writers, because you say it's a, it's a good program, so we get some amazing writers. Uh, is good. It keeps you on top of things. And um, it's good to have people challenge you and, and expect a lot of you and to meet their challenges. Uh, so I like that. I like being around young, young writers and writers who are ambitious and and idealistic. And that's great. Um, and I've never had a community of writers. I always wrote secretly, worked in restaurants. My, before I had this job, I worked only in restaurants and, and I was really out of any literary establishment even when after i published my first novel i was still working in restaurants in new york and um and writing eat the document and even when eat the document came out i was working in restaurants and i started to be a little bit my cover got blown a little bit because then there started to be more publicity when eat the document came out you were not
0: you were a novelist to support yourself as a as a restaurateur.
1: Yeah, well, that eventually became the case because we had our own restaurant and it, and it didn't um, make a lot of money, but we had a wonderful restaurant, and uh, it was a good life to have that uh, to have it that way. So teaching um, wasn't something I considered until I started to think about. Um, health insurance and that kind of stuff and a little more stability we were you know had a child and uh, it was very hard to, to, to make ends meet and in the, in the restaurant business um, and uh, and I wasn't sure how I would feel about it but as it turns out it's been really inspiring and interesting. And Syracuse is, is uh, I like central New York. It's a strange place.
0: It's beautiful, it's, yeah.
1: Well, it, it's also, it's kind of, this is, I'm probably the only one who will say this, but it's kind of like L.A. because <laughs> because it has a lot of, ex, it has a lot of space and there's a lot of eccentricity, a lot, it has a history of, of, of a sort of off, off the grid living. There's been, uh, you know, Christian perfectionist communities. There's been that's where the feminist movement really started. The Abolitionist movement was there. Central New York because the Erie Canal had the, this, you know, the 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 internet of the nineteenth century was really the Erie Canal. Uh, information went back and forth, and you had uh, religious extremists in the Burned Over District. So it has a very weird, kind of um, odd American marginal quality, and that, and that, and upstate New York does figure. Into Eat the Document and Stone Arabia is actually a place in upstate New York. I do see some, th- this kind of um, oddness to it. But I probably, you know, wherever I go, I'll probably find oddness because that's what I look for, I suppose.
0: But the houses cost $50 in Syracuse.
1: That's true. They are actually, yeah, 52, <laughs> 52 for a beautiful <laughs> house. It's true. Buy
0: two, get one free. Yeah. I'm Michael Soleil, and this has been a Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Uh, Dana Spiota, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. You are now listening to Van Dyke Parks.
1: Room for two in view of Sonoma, back
0: when Ramona had heart
1: memories of her orange crater.